Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for you, whoever you are. We're in this together. I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies, Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. On this week's episode of We're In It Together, <laughs> Rachel is exploring Psalm 33, 12-22, which is the psalm reading for August 7th, 2022. Rachel, I can't say that I'm too surprised by your choice uh, this week. Oh, I love a good psalm. I do also love Genesis 15, one of my favorite texts, but we've got two past episodes on that fantastically weird passage already in our pockets at firstreadingpodcast.com. So if you're interested in preaching on that text, you can check those out on our website. But we don't have an episode on Psalm 33 yet, so this seemed like a, a good chance to pick up a psalm. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do love working with the psalms. I, I especially love preaching on a psalm and for a very specific reason. Mm. What's that? Well, working with the Psalms is often a case of things aren't always what they seem, to quote one of my favorite Disney villains. Do you know it, Tim? (laughs) I guess I'm not quite so up in my Disney lore. Oh, it's Jafar from Aladdin when he's all dressed as the old man and they're in the dungeon and he's pushing the... Never mind. Mm. Anyway, it's a good part. Well, as much as I love Psalms, I love that movie as well, in part because the whole thing takes a Shakespearean look at how our assumptions often obscure the reality of whatever it is we are examining. The Sultan, right, is supposed to be the most powerful presence in a room, and instead he's this little boppy guy who is, you know, thrown around by the wind. Right. Uh, his, his daughter, who's supposed to be just this arm candy piece, knows more about um, running the country than he does, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So things aren't always what they seem in the movie Aladdin, and in the Psalms. Nice. Who knew that Aladdin was so deep? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by where you're going with this. Where, where are you seeing this particular swapping of assumptions and reality in Psalm 33? So it actually comes in all the way at the end. It's kind of hinted at in verse 15, and then it really unfolds at the end. Mm. So I need to work us up to it. This psalm at the beginning seems to be a really straightforward song of praise to God. And and those are the psalms that, if I'm really being honest, really just kind of bore the snot out of me. (laughs) That's quite the circumlocution. Well, anyone who knows me well knows that I'm intrigued by the messier parts of life, as evidenced by the fact that I've spent most of my scholarly time in biblical anger and the lament psalms. So when a psalm begins, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. I'm like, call me the unrighteous and let's go find the crooked ones because they're way more interesting. (laughs) But this is where I get caught in my assumptions about what this little psalm is all about. Like I said, it starts out straightforwardly enough. And I'm hoping by now that for the majority of our listeners, this won't need to be said. But please, if you preach this text, read the whole psalm. It's not that long and it's so worth it. I'm going to be walking us through it bit by bit in this episode. So if you're listening to this podcast and not operating a vehicle or heavy machinery, you may want to pull out your Bible or Bible app and follow along. Great idea. So the first three verses set the stage for what we're doing. Praising God with singing, band playing, loud shouts, take that stuffy church musician, or if you are a stuffy church musician, sorry. Ah. Verses four to five tell us why we're doing it because God is so great. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do for you. Did you do that camp song? I did not. 
but it sounds and pull great. Out all all the references that you don't know today. <laughs> I somehow missed out on your Christian childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Aladdin and and camp songs. So anyway, verse six begins with the praise itself, and it starts with this image of God as creator. Mm-hmm. Now. There's an interesting juxtaposition of two images of God in this psalm that could easily get missed in a quick read. And the second one is the one that actually starts to shift our assumptions a little bit. In verses 6 to 14, God is pictured as the Genesis 1 God, all lofty and powerful, creating by means of a word, gathering our deepest, darkest dangers and bottling them up for safekeeping in a wine cellar. Mm, But then things shift a bit in verse 15, right? Yeah, exactly. Here's where we get a quick glimpse of a different aspect of God. God who fashions the hearts of all people. And this is why you want to read the Psalms slowly. Fashions, well, and preferably in Hebrew. Fashions here is translating the Hebrew word hayotzer, which comes from the root yatsar. This is the same root that's used three times in Genesis 2. It's used to describe the way God fashioned or formed both people and animals. This is the same God in Genesis 2 that plants a garden and and places their brand new human into that garden so that the human can till it, keep it, tend it, serve it. Here in the middle of this psalm's blast of mighty God creator, the author slips in a slightly different image of God. God as intimate potter, puttering around an art shack, hands caked with clay, paint bespeckled glasses glinting, divine lips quirking up in a smile at the core or the heart of the being that is taking shape before their eyes. It's the first glimpse in this psalm that perhaps, as Jafar says, things aren't always what they seem in the midst of this pan of praise. And it comes right as the psalm takes a turn, structurally, from praise of God as creator to a description of God as savior. A king is not saved by a great army, nor a warrior by strength, nor a people by their military might. Verses 18 to 19 say, truly, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in God's steadfast love, to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. It's a lovely description of what God is capable of doing, what God is capable of doing. But what is God actually doing in those verses, Tim? Um, So the eye of the Lord is on those who fear. So I guess God's watching. Yeah, exactly. But is God actually described as saving those who are watched? Huh. Um... Not exactly. I mean, it seems to suggest that God will save, but the experience of salvation itself isn't actually described here as far as I can see. Yeah, that's because it hasn't happened yet. And we hear that in verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And soul, here's a translation of one of my favorite (laughs) Hebrew words. Nefesh! Nefesh, precisely. And nefesh is, as our longtime listeners will know, your throat, your esophagus, your breathing, gasping, weeping, swallowing, wailing throat, the pipeline of life for your entire being without which you cannot exist. I'd love to see that on a t-shirt. Oh, you can get it on our merch page. (laughs) (laughs) 
So here, the people's collective nefesh is said to wait for God. And what are the two things they're waiting in the midst of in verse 19, Tim? Um, uh, death and famine. Yeah, famine. Your nefesh is the thing that swallows the food you need to survive. The people's nefesh, again, collective singular, is waiting for God because there's famine upon the land. And they're scared. They're glad because they trust God's ability to save. But the suggestion of these last few verses is that that salvation has not yet arrived. The final verse of the poem is actually a petition, a plea, even a lament. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Mm, that's so interesting. It's like uh, an expression of longing in a, an experience mm. of absence or need. Yes. Yeah, I think so. What seems to be a straightforward praise of God in this psalm, a praise that is separated and distant from actual life, turns out to be a way of drawing God into the places of life and death where we need God the most. The psalm suggests that one of the ways to get through those waiting, hoping periods of our lives is by turning to praise in God, but not a praise that's divorced from our actual reality. It's a praise that draws out different shades of God, that reminds us of God's care and love for us, that offers us an opening to take our fear and our hope straight to God. It's a model of waiting that is as fiercely realistic as it is hopeful that, to bring things full circle, things aren't always as they seem. <laughs> that despite every evidence to the contrary, even in the face of death and famine, God is actually working on our behalf. Mm. That's awesome. And, and you know, the great thing about preaching from a psalm like this is that the text itself works not just as a, like a prompt for re reflection and interpretation, but you can also use it, right, as, as a model or even mm. a liturgical sort of pathway to make that actual appeal to God in the moment, in the, in the mm. experience of worship. Absolutely. And I think that'd be a super powerful way to end a sermon. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for that deep dive into the Psalms, Rach. <laughs> Anytime. Okay, friends, that will do it for our episode this week. If you'd like to learn more about our hosts and guests, visit us at firstreadingpodcast.com. All of our episodes are there and are easily searchable with our handy-dandy search tool. You can also keep up with us on Facebook or send us an email to firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. We have a merch page on our website, and you can also support us if you'd like via PayPal donations. Thanks to all of our supporters, including Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. <laughs>